Hello, everyone. This is Steve from A Better Life. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, Premium Botanical. They are the makers of Herbal Spectrum, which is a full-spectrum hemp-based CBD. They make salves, liquids, and they have a great mixed berry uh, gummy. You can check them out at www.mypbcbd.com. Now our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Better Life with George and Steve. How are you, George? Good, Steve. Nice to be back. It I, is. I walked into this studio, and I don't see any extra phonographs, which is a plus, a good sign. But I see a lot of extra space, which will lead to, I think, more phonographs. Nothing out here. It's all going in the back room. <laughs> So is this a new law that you've instilled? I have instilled just the one big one because I don't think it'll fit back there. It's so big. I never realized how big it is until I started comparing it to everything else. I have four others. Two are being restored. Two I need to pick up. And then that's going to be it. And then I'm working on organizing and completing the music portion of my collection. I see. I see. And and the lighting is very different. I see today. Yeah, I I put a I have to get another, some of the lamps for the back, so I took one out and put it back there because I need a little light. I don't like the bright light when I go back there and play something because I usually videotape it and post it on Facebook or post it somewhere. Very nice. So I've been trying to every day at least play one of them, whether I record it or not. It's another story, only because that's what they're here for, right? To use them so and enjoy them. That's right. So I'm trying right. to I'm trying to do that every day. Okay. Okay. Some days I play more. Some days I play less. Some days it's 78. Some days it's an Edison Embryola cylinder. Sometimes it's a two-minute Edison Gold. Uh, How many people get to say that? How many people have you know these toys where, yeah, you're like connecting with a century ago of the highest technology money could buy back then? Yeah. Pretty cool. Today's song was, I think it was today, called Wake Up America. Oh. And it's about, I don't know, some obscure writer. But it was a song saying to America, you better re- start realizing we have to enter World War One." It was written in 1916 because everybody needs to get on the same page hmm. because we have to protect America's interests. Let's not forget what George Washington right. and Abraham Lincoln did mm-hmm. and those kind of things, which is interesting. I, I thought it was a little ironic by everything that goes on in the world today. but Yeah, and then you... George Washington, right? The founding fathers, then a few decades go by, and then you have massive, like the Monroe Doctrine happens, and then another few decades happen, and then then Wake Up America, and now we're rolling into... uh, Go back to bed, America. Wake Up Early America. But, uh, okay, very nice. So today is our, I think, abbreviated Valentine's Day special edition. I know everybody out there uh, has done something special for their significant valentine significant valentine i at least i hope they did and i hope you're going to listen to us but it'll be after valentine's day because i'm not editing it tonight i i just would like to wish my special valentine a a wonderful day and give out all the love out there to the world that's very nice i mine isn't in japan 
Mine's only in New Jersey, so, right. so it's a little easier. Ours, our time zones are makes things a little harder, but uh, the sentiment's there and the love's there. Absolutely. Do they celebrate? Absolutely. Valentine's they, Day in they Japan. Actually, they actually celebrate something even more. There's a, a White Day as well, and countries that celebrate White Day, the Valentine's Day then becomes a reverse. The ladies propose their affection and love to their man, and uh, therefore, on Valentine's Day. February 14th, the girl gives the guy chocolate or flowers or a card. And one month later, on March 14th, that's when the, traditionally the boy then returns the... If he declares the same affection, then he returns flowers, chocolates, a purse. Uh, Only in Japanese, Japan are they right. so organized. Yeah. <laughs> Here we have a Sadie Hawkins Day. I have no idea what it is, but that's when... You'll see Sadie Hawkins dances, and I don't know who the heck Sadie Hawkins is, but it is traditionally when women ask men out. I have been asked to dinner in the past on Sadie Hawkins Day, and they not only asked but paid, which was an unusual event. And that's the only thing. It has no relationship to Valentine's Day. And some women do give Valentine's Day gifts to Mm -hmm. their men. But it's not as required. And if you don't do something for Valentine's Day, you're always left to be. When I was in the florist today, there was a line out the door. People were like looking. Busy day for florists. People were looking at the cheapest thing. Guys come in, I laugh at the cheapest thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'll have that one. And I'll have balloons. And I'll have this. So that's the way it works. Chocolates, candies, flowers. Big day for that industry. So for a second. Maybe we should just follow up because we talked a lot about the Super Bowl last week. Mm -hmm. And we talked this week, and the game was, I think by all accounts, moderately boring till till the last quarter. the first three quarters were, like, extremely boring. And then there was, like, a... Turnaround. This, yeah, tingling feeling of, oh, some magic's going to happen. And little by little, this destiny was coming true. And... Yeah, Kansas City just, they looked more prepared. They looked like they knew what they were doing, and they just executed play-by-play. I think the defense was exhausted. Oh, absolutely. Um, San Francisco defense was exhausted, and that was the turning point. But just to mention on a horrible note today, also there was the parade in Kansas City, and there was three, apparently, Three gunmen who opened fire on the crowd, and there were one person killed and 22 people injured at this point, which is a horrible thing that we have to live with Shocking. every day. It's hard to know or say, especially a town like Kansas City who had the bombing so many years ago. It's middle America. By any other counts, it's definitely middle America. And I feel horrible, and I'm sure George is with me, and we'll send out our hearts and thoughts and prayers to right. everyone in Kansas City, not just the people that are injured, but the fans whose days were destroyed by a couple people, perpetrators, that we don't know who they are, what they, where they're from, or anything. So, at this point. It's, it's you know, you just watch the news coverage, and even the, the reporters are shaken and dumbfounded and just completely caught as a surprise, right? And it's it's just... You're right. just numb and, and shocked. We were just watching something, and I turned to George and said, these two are in total shock. They're just like trying to describe how they feel, and they have the inability to do that. Just a, yeah, a little moment of silence for them, and hopefully they persevere and come back stronger. But it must be tough. It's a lot of uh, sending a lot of love out there. Right. 
What have we talked a little bit before about what we're going to talk about? I know you mentioned... Another somber note. A great chef, Chef oh, David yeah. Boulay, passed yesterday. David Boulay was basically a tremendous force in the culinary scene for American chefs here in New York. And he's definitely missed. He was and still is loved by so many who he touched who he gave a chance to to work with him and to learn from a master, a maestro. I I started my career in early 2000, probably 2001, and he was already someone of a famed name. And if anyone's been to Boulay down on Duane Street in Tribeca, the moment you enter, you're you go through a short galley of apples. He has he's noted to just start your meal, your experience off with this it's as if you walked into an apple orchard and you're trans, transported into this mystery, magical land. And you get seated in this beautiful dining room and off you go. You're the, your next two, three, four hours, maybe. You're transported into this almost magical Parisian experience. But you're in the heart of downtown Tribeca and you are being served some of the best food in the world. I used to work on Duane Street, and one day, not even knowing what it was, I wandered in there with some guy I went to high school with who ended up working next to me at the EPA, and we wandered in there for lunch one day. And we were like the only two people in the place. I don't know if it was like an early dinner or whatever. It was just a few people in the place, and we were blown away by the meal. Blown away. Every bite is sensational. And I got to say, every chef that I've worked with who's worked under Chef Poulet or worked in that same kitchen, have nothing but the best memories and the best experiences one could ever hope for. Certainly, New York lost a great chef yesterday, and so did the country. Yeah. I used to go to, and I told George a little bit about it, they had, I want to say it was like on 40th Street or something like that, they had a restaurant, but it also had a teaching kitchen where you went and got lessons. And you basically sat at a bar, and all the ovens and things were right there. And I forget the gentleman's name who worked for Boulay. And he he cooked and demonstrated. One, there were one time we went to a bread thing. Another time he was very health conscious. Another time we went to a paella, where he made three or four different kinds of paella. And the third time, I don't remember what we went, but it was a ridiculous expense because everybody goes out of their mind. And the best wine, the best this, and the bill is astronomical, but it's an amazing experience. Yeah, it's uh, talking about just Boulay and not talking about brushstroke would be a disservice. Chef Boulay was also so interested in Japanese food. I think that's where my connection with uh, Chef Boulay was. I worked for a Japanese distribution, food distribution company and we did sake and we also did these really amazing ingredients that we'd import from Japan. He was one of the first chefs that we would show these products to. He just had such a deep understanding of flavors, textures, and just the nuances of anything, whether it be citrus or something like seaweed from the sea, some petrified fish, you know, just, just even high-end miso, soy sauce, different salts from different bays in Japan. And he would incorporate it with his chef Chef Yamada, who headed the kitchen at Brushstroke, probably the most most talented Japanese chef in New York in terms of washoku, Japanese cuisine. He's really a true chef, um, 
true art artist, really. And uh, together, Mr. Yamada and Mr. Boulay together uh, opening up Brushstroke, New York got a taste of uh, some really excellent early stage uh, washoku cuisine. And I think that really opened the floodgates for more Japanese chefs to really uh, spread their wings and embrace the New York market with their art form. Again, I have nothing but the fondest memories of everyone who's worked with Chef Boulay and also my very limited exposure with with Chef Boulay trying some of our products back in the day. And when he gave us the thumbs up, that was a testament to the sourcing and all the hard work trying to get those products to New York. Great memories. Well, legend. I saw condolences and notations from every great chef you would know. It's amazing. Uh, he was a legend, and that and that really just sums it up. And he was an artist, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Here's to you, chef. Last last week was weekend was Super Bowl, and then actually, yeah, this past Monday, I went to this really amazing benefit charity benefit event for the sake breweries that were damaged by a massive earthquake in Ishikawa Prefecture in Japan. So a lot of the, uh, the sake professionals, whether from the PR side, from the distribution side, from the importing side, from the restaurant, retail side, everyone got together and chipped in and uh, we were able to raise quite, quite a significant amount of money through ticket sales and uh, through donations and things like that. I got to see a lot of old faces, old friends that I haven't seen in Almost a decade or so. So is that the earthquake that took place when you were there? No, that this was weeks prior. This was a bigger yeah, the earthquake I was in. It registered a four point two. That that would be big here, but that's a uh, once every two, maybe three four months in Japan, you'll get a nice shake. And it was only like a second too. So earthquakes that last five seconds plus, almost ten seconds, are catastrophic, even if they register smaller. But right. a big shake with a one-second shake, not too bad. But the one in Ishikawa was, it was big enough that it brought down buildings, brought down houses, brought down breweries that have been around for a few hundred years, five, six, seven generations old. A ton of them have now disappeared. And there is a massive effort to rebuild. There's a massive effort to raise funds so that we can make it possible. And the sake community here in New York I have to say is amazing, filled with a lot of industry professionals passionate about the craft. I know there's wine people who transferred into the sake world. I know there's guys who worked in the restaurants as GMs, as servers, who now are on the distribution and importing side of sake because it's just this really amazing, almost renaissance of the beverage here. I think in the next five 10 years, we really will see a sake as a major varietal on, on a lot of beverage menus. It's tremendously delicious, has a lot of potential for pairings, and will I think will capture the hearts and the, the palates of all Americans. Really? It's interesting. I look forward to that. It's always, it's funny how the culinary world never sleeps, right? There's always some artist out there that comes up with something they never thought of before. And I used to tell my sales reps, listen, you have to consider food, what we eat, as fashion. It's fashionable now. It might not be 10 years. It might be even more so 10 years. But understand that it's just like language, right? It constantly evolves. We adapt and we evolve with food, language, clothing, fashion, 
All this is all, uh, it's not stationary. It just continually evolves and moves with you. And uh, food, for what it's worth, we have certain dishes that have passed the test of time, right? There's just simple dishes, original dishes that it's good. But uh, you also have foods that kind of have had its heyday and it's no longer a thing. And you roll with the punches. Yeah, but and there's also things that move into the staples of American life, right? Mexican food gets real popular, and all of a sudden it slips into the regular rotation for American life. Right? Like I, I would say like avocado. Without Mexican food, we probably would not have been introduced to the avocado, and now it's considered a superfood for breakfast, right? Like yeah, well, the avocado toast. Perhaps not. You would not connect the direct dots to a enchilada or some Mexican food, but because of the exposure, because it's been around in supermarkets, it has its own, almost its own little island in between the aisles. It's almost on every menu. It's on every menu. And it's a nice add-on and it's delicious. And guess what? It's a superfood. It's super healthy. Almost on every American restaurant menu, right? Add avocado, right? Every lunch, any lunch salad will have an option that's the way it is. I think it, and it's a beautiful thing, right? We all have to eat to survive, and why not eat better? Why not eat? Look at, at tuna. You used to tuna with sushi, and now it's uh, seared tuna is almost on every right, salad, right. every place you go, every diner, every everything. There's seared tuna. Yesteryear, tuna was canned tuna, and then this whole sushi and toro boom, and now everyone understands t- raw tuna is utterly delicious. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, you have your seared tuna on your menus and uh, all the tuna carpaccio, tuna sushi, tuna poke, right? Anything tuna. I'm always amazed at the fish markets in Japan and how food, how these fishes become almost like a currency, that they're so expensive. Mm. Well, the auctions are insane. The auctions are insane. The previous, so the Tsukiji market, which is closed now, the Tsukiji market was at that time the largest fish market in the world. And then now the new one that replaced Tsukiji called Toyosu is 40% larger. This thing is basically a city, it's bigger than a city block. It must be like three city blocks worth of real estate. And uh, you go to the tuna auction. They block it off now because tourists ruined it for everyone. And, uh, but you can look from the upstairs window and they have these monstrous 400, 500 pounders lined up in a row, four, five, six rows deep. And they're just auctioning out to the house that's going to pick up the fish, then break it and create it into sections for their prized sushi restaurants. So it's a multiple tier system that has been going on for hundreds of years. And uh, it's a sight to be seen. But the best part about it is the auction's around 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. When that ends, you just walk around the corner and you go to all these famous sushi shops that are open for breakfast. And like 8,000 yen, so it's about like 45, 50 bucks. You're going to get some of the best sushi you've ever had. It's not fancy like Ginza or New York high-end style where it's, everything's pristinely cut and it's glimmering and it's perpendicular and all that. This is the rustic fisherman sushi, but it's fresh, it's made with skill, and it's it's a great experience. So they're serving the fish they just bought at the market? Is that what you're um, doing? There's 
today, so again, food is fashion, right? Today's sushi is not like the same sushi I had when I was a kid living in Japan in the 80s. And you can go, you can just say the same thing every 10, 20 years going back. It has evolved into what it is today. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is the same in the sense that it has neta, which is the raw fish or the cured fish on top, the shari, which is the vinegared rice, and the nigiri is the action in which you're putting it all together into your fist, right? So that, that's the nigiri. And the nigiri-style sushi has been going on for, I think, four or 500 years. And if you had a time machine and a camera and you took a snapshot every 10, 20 years, you would see that it's gotten smaller. It used to be a two-finger width hand nigiri, and now most chefs only use one finger. And maybe that's because so that you can try more dishes, more bites. So it's improved the experience, but it's, it's a different animal. It's a different exposure experience. You're not biting the nigiri anymore. It's a one, one-shot deal. It's seasoned with the master's soy sauce blend back in the 80s. Very few places would do that. It was basically you would dip the fish into the soy sauce and put as much or as little as you wanted. A lot's changed, but uh, it's undoubtedly delicious. Uh, listen, I love sushi, and I don't like some of the things that are like still crawling when you eat them kind of thing, but I love it. And you could tell the fresh one. Right? Mm. Some are aged, too, now. So that's what I should have mentioned earlier and. I was reluctant to say, oh, they're using the fish right out of auction because they realized that the science and the uh, art form of fishing has also changed and improved. The moment a certain type of fish, and it depends on the type of fish, right? They may, uh, they may ikejime it, which is once it's caught, they'll drain the blood. They'll cut the, uh, under the collar, they'll crack and then make sure that it exposes the, uh, the vertebrae. From the tail part, they'll cut and basically bleed out the fish. They'll stick a, a metal a metal wire through the spine to stop it from and paralyze it, basically. So you're stopping all the adrenaline from going into the bloodstream, and therefore that will sour and ruin the texture of the protein. So you want to, we're able to keep that in pristine condition. So taking that fish and now throwing it into a super freezer, you're able to stop time, essentially. The fish, if you rethought it, is basically 20 minutes old, one hour old. It hasn't even gone through rigor mortis yet. The fish that they thaw like a fluke or like a flounder, once it's perfectly thawed and you rest it, it's going through rigor mortis now. And then at that time, they will fillet it and slice it. And now you have this amazingly, what they call in Japanese, which is, it's an anamonopia. It's, it just means that it's almost crunchy. Flesh is so fresh, it's in rigor, it's so crunchy. You have this really nice toothsome feel, and uh, that's the pinnacle of whitefish sashimi. Hmm. Tuna, I believe, they age for seven days. Some fish, they'll age for two. And uh, the chefs just know how to manipulate the protein to accentuate the umami, the texture, and also the color. And we're, we're in the golden age of, of culinary delights. Really? That's more than I ever contemplated. Yeah, it, it, and I know just about this much, right? I, there's so much to learn. And the greatest sushi chefs, I think, are the ones that engage with their customers. And they know, they live off of smiles, I think. That's what chefs do. A sushi chef watches their customers sitting at the counter, eat their sushi, eyes close, 
you leave, you give out a little breath out of your nose, you're chewing, and uh, you just, your whole way through, you open your eyes and tell the chef that was delicious. Chef's like, thank you. Pulls up either a book, iPad, a picture. This is the fish that you just ate. It's unique because of this and this. It was caught this day by the fishermen over in this part of the world. They know everything about what they're sourcing. And that's the beautiful thing about premium high-end sushi. If you're not, to me, if you're not asking those questions, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're paying an astronomical amount of money. Might as well get educated as long as well as enjoying a delicious meal. Interesting. So does that go on in New York as well as it goes on in Japan? Yeah. So New York, I would say the last 10 years, right off the bat, if you gave me a pen and pen paper, I could give you 30 names of uh, chefs that have come from Japan, all parts of Japan, not just Tokyo, but uh, to come here and show their craft. So I would say 10 years ago, I wouldn't say New York was a sushi destination. You'd have to go to Japan for that experience. Today, I think dollar for dollar, maybe more. I think maybe you'd, <laughs> that's crazy, right? You pay more in New York for high-end sushi than Tokyo. If you paid, and this is disgusting to say, but you'd have to pay $500 in New York to experience something for $200 in, in Tokyo. But the quality is the same. So is the fish coming from the Pacific or is it yeah, coming from? All over the world. All, all over the world. world. But for the most part, Toyosu Sushi auction Market is where all the premium fish will go first because that's where they know the people who want the best of the best will pay for. And you'll have scouts and buyers going in the, mar in the morning, picking out, putting into boxes, throwing some dry ice around it, putting another box around it, and then it's FedEx over immediately. The moment the, the, the people buy it in Toyosu, within an hour, it's uh, already on a truck going to either Narita or Haneda Airport. And 12 hours later, it's at JFK. Another hour or two goes through all the paperwork. And it's uh, within 24 hours, let's say, the chef in New York City has the same fish as the chef in Tokyo. Wow. And uh, yeah, they do their magic. I know my friend has a has a rather large fishing boat, and he goes all over in the North Atlantic as well as in Florida, and he he catches tuna all the time. And he'll bring it in. Somebody will pay five thousand, six thousand dollars for a, for a tuna. Oh, easy! Hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Yeah, it's pays for his fuel. He says the, uh, the champion tuna. So the homemaguro, yet the bluefin. The highly sought-after bluefin tuna from either the Sea of Japan or the northern part where Japan and Russia meet, that, that part of the waters, those fish, let's say a 500-pounder, it can command over a million dollars. Wow. I kid you not. And the pride in which these sushi restaurants, I guess, they uphold, they can never not have tuna. That's basically, if they can't... Uh, secure their hands on good quality tuna, they're not going to open. And it's it's like samurai mentality. It's shameful. Samurai it, mentality. It, it, but it is. These guys are just hardcore blue-collar workers. Like they pro That's their badge of honor to, to serve what they can source the best, best products possible for their customers. And 
There's guys like, there's a chain. There's a chain that has 40 restaurants in Tokyo called Sushi Zamai and the CEO. Every year, New Year's Eve, he's on national television. He takes a spot for his commercial and he says, Yeah, today I bought the most expensive tuna in Tsukiji or Toyosu Market. And I'm breaking it all up to all my stores around, the, around Tokyo, around the country. If you want the best, you come to my place. And smart, right? Oh, brilliant. Even though he paid $2 million, whatever, it's, it's worth it. Because, yeah, his claim is factual. And it's, it's an everyday person's sushi place. Although, it's become a little bit more expensive than I remember. He must be doing pretty well gathering clientele and charging a uh, a nice premium but uh, good for him he's you play the game and uh, you want to give the clients the best of the best but in japan no one's going to tolerate anything but the best right people aren't going to tolerate so barrier of entry is the barrier of entry is low competition is high so you take a country of 130 million that's one third of our country right we're at like 370 we have about 500,000 restaurants in our country, 500,000. Japan is 600,000. <laughs> so they have three times more restaurants than we do. The barrier of entry of owning a restaurant is very low. The, uh, it's not necessarily a credit check. It's just sometimes I've heard it's a shake of a hand and you turn the key and now you're running this restaurant you would never stiff the guy out of a contract or wages or the owner of the real estate does not have to chase the, uh, the store owner for rent. Let's put it that way. That's not really a thing in Japanese culture. And uh, unthinkable here, right? Without ironclad contracts. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing. So the barrier entry is easy. It's low. You A lot of amateurs, right? A lot of guys who just love cooking, a lot of ladies who finished their first career and wants to open up a restaurant, can. You can open a cafe with some food. You just have to get a food license, food service license, and you're up and running. The barrier of entry is very low, very easy, and you can make a living out of it. It's not uncommon to eat two, three meals outside the house and still relatively close to the same budget. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I know that... I've seen a lot of shows about restaurants in Japan, and mm-hmm. I always find it interesting. People that start and try right. to make it, and the honor that's involved, and the tradition that's involved. Relationships and, with the your food purveyor is tremendous. It is a samurai mentality. Right. Exactly. Like you, you coined it perfectly. I never thought of it like that, but it's a samurai mentality. It's all about honor and tradition and hope you make money. Yeah, you want to make a living. You want to make a decent honest living for you and your family. And uh, that's something that as an adult, I see even more clear now doing business in Japan, doing to business with Japanese. It's not the fastest. It's not the most glorious in terms of glitz and fame. But at the end of the day, when you're counting everything from just everything, everything included, you can say that you did a honest day's work. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It is so cold today, yesterday, and the day before. I thought we were in the clear, and no such luck. I woke up this morning, and it was, what, 23, and it said, real feel, 14. Oh, boy. 
And I walk to the station, hop on the train, get to Grand Central, walk a few blocks, and I'm in my office. But uh, it's great. And it's also, oh boy, sometimes, some days you're like, my bones hurt, my, my hip hurts. How am I going to make it? But uh, we all do somehow, don't we? Nothing like a CBD gummy for the, the help That's with right. the, your aches and pains. That was very interesting about I, I being being Valentine's Day and, and you think about going to a sushi rest, restaurant or something like that. It's nice to know a little bit more and I appreciate the overview. Oh, and, and sushi is one of the funny things. I thought by being raised in Japan, I had an inside track and then entering the food world, I met a gentleman, Trevor Corson, on his business card, it says, Sushi concierge. Basically, people pay Trevor to sit with them to eat sushi, and he narrates and takes you on a journey based on what fish, what nigiris the sushi chef prepares. He has a dialogue with the chef and then basically adds uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge about whatever it is that makes that dish so incredible. He's written numerous books about sushi about japan and uh yeah sushi is just one of those skill sets that are passed down generation to generation and there are those chefs in new york city third generation sushi chefs that are doing the craft of 100 years ago i have to say i don't think there's anything more american and nouveau riche than having someone come with you and explain what you're eating nouveau riche (laughs) absolutely but being valentine's day I, i think we can Abbreviated a little bit here, if if you don't, unless there's yeah, yeah. something else you want to cover. But I think that was a great overview of of Japan and sushi and New York City and everything about it. it and I, yeah, it's funny. I'm just getting hotter and hotter about Japan. I think my new position, and I'm actually heading over to Japan next week. I'll be there for two weeks on business, and just I think I'll be traveling to five different prefectures with my colleague. And uh, I'm happy. I'll be, I'll be very excited to come back and talk about all the food we ate. I think we may have to do some on location there. Maybe we could do some. And maybe, we've been talking about this. I know. We uh, have the technology. We haven't tested it we out. Have it so, all. But um, I would be happy to dial in from either Tokyo or up north or wherever down south. it is. I think we're definitely going to do that. And right. next week you'll be away? I'm or flying out. Yeah, I'm flying out Tuesday and I'll be back the following. Okay, maybe Thursday or Friday right, next right. week. We'll, we'll put something together. And it turns out that this is a great introduction to the world of Japan on, Perfect. on our overview of sushi. And uh, I think I'm going to have to listen to it back more than once because there was a lot of information there. I look forward to our look into the world of food and culinary and how it all works in Japan. And we're lucky that we're going to have you there and and go through it. Awesome. On that note, I wish you all the happiest Valentine's Day. Yes. Happy Valentine's Day, my love. And we'll catch you guys very soon. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. 